I'm not coming and saying optimistic is the way to go. I'm not coming and saying ZK is the way to go. I'm saying we have a real problem. And we have users, by the way, that want a solution to that problem today. They don't want to wait. They want a solution today. And they want the best technology available today. And by the way, in five years, they're going to want the best technology available in five years. And I can promise you this, whether I'm a ZK Maxi or an optimistic Maxi, it doesn't matter. In five years, all this stuff is going to look primitive. This episode is brought to you by Circle the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. Uh, welcome, everyone, for another great episode in Empire. We are have the privilege of having two folks that have been super deep in the Ethereum ecosystem since the earliest of days, at least as I can remember. So we're joined by uh, Raul Jordan, co-founder of Prismatic Labs, core developer of Ethereum at Ethereum. And we also have Stephen Goldfender, Fetter, uh, co-founder of Offchain Labs, which a lot of you guys know as uh, Arbitrum. Uh, so Offchain Labs is uh, the developer um, uh, behind the L2 called Arbitrum. So uh, welcome, folks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Good to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's great to have you both here um, because I think in this discussion, there's a lot to cover. Obviously, you guys announced an acquisition recently, uh, which uh, is super important. I think we'll uh, definitely get into. But before before we get there, uh, perhaps just level set the conversation. Maybe Raul, Stephen, give a, a brief uh, background intro on yourselves and then we can get started. Raul, do you want to uh, take sure. it <laughs> Yeah, so my name is uh, Raul Jordan. I'm uh, one of the developers working on the Ethereum protocol uh, and uh, previously part of a team called Prismatic Labs. We were an independent team of software engineers that kind of joined the Ethereum space because we wanted to make a difference in scalability and shipping the major upgrades that are on the roadmap for Ethereum. Most recently, we shipped, uh, finally shipped proof of stake on Ethereum mainnet, uh, getting rid of all Ethereum, uh, Ethereum mining. Uh, this past September, which is a significant milestone because it changes a lot of the dynamics of the protocol. Um, we've been we've done this in collaboration with uh, several other teams that kind of uh, joined us along the way, and uh, we built a pretty strong uh, pretty strong following. Currently, our software is uh, the most popular software used to run the Ethereum blockchain itself. It's called Prism, and uh, so we've been we've been deeply involved in the protocol for many years. And uh, most you know, just recently, we all joined uh, we all joined uh, the Arbitrum family in Offchain Labs. Hey, I'm Steven Goldfeder. I am a co-founder and CEO of Offchain Labs. That's the team building Arbitrum. And my background was even before the company Offchain Labs was founded um, during my time at Princeton together with my two co-founders, actually. So I, was, I have my PhD from Princeton and my co-founder, Ed, was a professor there for, for a long time. And Harry was also a PhD student in our group. And we were doing a lot of work related to uh, crypto crypto and blockchains. And one of them was how do we scale blockchains and how do we scale smart contracts? And that was a project called Arbitrum, which started off as an academic project and then um, moved into a commercial project. And, you know, Arbitrum actually, so if you look, uh, the earliest mentions you'll find of Arbitrum online, the research phase actually predates Ethereum. But once Ethereum went live as the dominant uh, smart contract plat platform with, uh, you know, the, amazing, the best tech and the best community, from the first days of the company, we were always about scaling Ethereum and how do we scale uh, this smart contract platform in particular. And we are four plus years, just over four years into the company now. And we are still asking ourselves, we've done a lot and we have Arbitrum is live and it's the leading layer two uh, scaling platform for Ethereum today. But we're still asking ourselves, how do we do better? How do we um, make the experience even better for, for users and developers alike? 
Definitely. So I want to touch a little bit on the acquisition first. Um, so tell us a little bit about what started the conversation around the acquisition. When did that happen? Um, you've been discussing that for a while and how did all this uh, came about? So one thing to to mention is, you know, these were our two very, very strong teams and, you know, uh, you know, Prismatic Labs is, you know, by, by, you know, one of the strongest Ethereum core developer teams. So the first thing that happened, this wasn't a team, you know, uh, like looking to, uh, you know, sell itself, I'll say. This was really a meeting of the minds and we, we got to meet each other over the past, over the past year, you know, over the past uh, six to eight months, probably um, more, more deeply, got to know each other, spend time together virtually and in person and really, you know, started with, I hate to say the word, but like nerd out sessions, um, whiteboarding sessions. Hey, what are you interested in? And, and, you know, as, as Raul will tell you a lot of the Ethereum, uh, core development work, it, it has the same goal of like scaling Ethereum, building a, building a scalable smart contract platform. And of course there are different components to that. There's, um, the layer one components that need to come into place and also the layer two components, but at a very high level from a values perspective, we were working on very related and parts of the same problem, I would even say, and from a technical perspective, a lot of the same interests and the conversations were just, um, at the same time, we shared a lot, but we also learned a lot, right? So there was so much we had in common, but so much that our experiences complemented one another. And as we spent more time together over the past many months, um, it just became clear that there was so much that can be gained both for us as, as teams, us as individuals, but also us as, a, as the Ethereum community by us working together and um, having a single roadmap, um, um, a shared roadmap, I should say. And so that's basically, you know, at least my view, I don't know if Raul would agree of how, how this came to be, it just over time it became very obvious as we got to know each other. Yeah, this, this really all started because, you know, as we, as we work on the Ethereum protocol's future and we ask ourselves the question, like, you know, where is Ethereum going? Um, you know, all the research and development has been le leaning towards, uh, you know, layer two rollups, such as Arbitrum, right? So mm -hmm. Ethereum is really focused on enabling rollups. And what that means is making them a lot cheaper to use, making them a lot more secure and building tools that are baked into the protocol that just make it, uh, you know, make rollups that much better. So we started, you know, when we were working on these things. We started asking ourselves like, hey, like the next frontier uh, for, for Ethereum is really at layer two and really solving the problems that they that they face and making them, uh, just amazing pieces of technology. So we started looking and, you know, it's clear Arbitrum was, you know, the best uh, solution, the the one that had so much, so much on the roadmap, so many awesome things in the works and, uh, you know, got a chance to meet, uh, meet Steven, Ed and Harry. And uh, yeah, we just nerded out. We spent some time talking together and we're like, hey, our teams are so similar. Um, you know, we have so much that, you know, that that is shared on our roadmaps. Like, why don't we figure out how we can work closer together? naturally these discussions, you know, one thing led to another and uh, now we're here. That's great. And so I'm curious, Raul, from your perspective, you know, having shipped the merge and, you know, Ethereum's successful transition to proof of stake, which was something that you've been working on for the last couple of years, what were the kind of the, you talk about like the, the things that you're focused on after that and that being in alignment with what Arbitrum is working on. Can you, can you touch a little bit about on, on what those, because a lot of people say, well, the merge happened. Okay, we're done. How, what were you working on before this acquisition came about? What were kind of your goals, more so from like the Ethereum roadmap perspective? Sure. So one, you know, one big misconception that you know a few folks that might might have had is that the merge is going to solve Ethereum scaling problems, right? Like, right. oh, uh, the merge actually was, you know, it sets the foundation for the future of Ethereum, and one of the big ones was proof of stake 
with proof of stake, you get so many benefits um, at the protocol level. It just make Ethereum that much better to use and uh, enables enables a lot easier upgrades in the future. So what we were really thinking about was, um, you know, the, the scaling roadmap for Ethereum. And it's clear that Ethereum is going to scale through layer two. Um, the, the main thing to work on at the, at the protocol level right now is how can we make rollups a lot cheaper and more secure to use? One of the big ones is that Arbitrum's biggest cost today is the money that, you know, the, the transaction fees and the cost that it pays Ethereum uh, to, to store data on chain, right? Um, this data is needed in order for Arbitrum to maintain its security guarantees uh, of fraud proofs. So the main thing we're working on is this, is this, is this thing called EIP-4844, which will add more data to Ethereum that will lower the cost of rollups such as Arbitrum by probably 100x, uh, which is some of the estimates that are being placed. So imagine if today Arbitrum Nitro is the cheapest uh, rollup solution out there in the market, imagine being you know, 10, 100x cheaper uh, for many transactions. It'll be a game changer. There's so much you can do on that front. Um, so that's the immediate item that kind of we're, we're focused on and, and we're looking at with our team and also prototyping inside of Arbitrum Nitro. I want to transition a little bit in more generally, like I think Prism is, is open source, is kind of you know free to use Ethereum clients, the most widely used, I believe. Uh, and that's really amazing in, in so many ways, um, you know, this open source culture. I'm curious, like how, how did the team fund itself? How did you think about monetization, the ongoing funding of, of Prismatic Labs um, before the acquisition? Like, how do you build, I guess, like, succinctly, how do you build like a sustainable business model um, as like a, you know, open source developer? Yeah, for developers that are, you know, companies that are building open source software in Ethereum, uh, you have to ask yourself some pretty hard questions, right? Um, for, you know, you have to make sure that whatever strategy that you pursue is, is aligned with you know, the best interests of the protocol and also the best interests of your users. Um, you know, the work that we did was working on core development. It's a public good, right? We're building Ethereum. Uh, you know, Ethereum already has kind of a, uh, you know, an asset, which is Ether. Um, you know, we can't, we can't go out and launch our own chain with our own token or anything like that. Of course, um, there are other teams that are working on open source software on Ethereum that were thinking about things like, uh, you know, they have like security audit firms on the side. They operate more like consultancies. Uh, where they work with bigger companies to provide services like that. Um, that was one of the avenues that we explored. Um, you know, over the past few years, we were just so laser focused on shipping the merge and getting things ready um, that we didn't want to kind of distract ourselves in the short term with any of these things. Um, you know, and we were funded primarily through grants from the Ethereum Foundation and uh, from generous members of the community that helped us get to this point. Um, but the team was basically laser focused on just shipping the Ethereum protocol upgrades. And that's kind of what really uh, drives us. Our main mission was really to scale Ethereum from the beginning. So, um, you know, joining off-chain was, was uh, really perfect because, you know, they want to scale Ethereum as well. So mm -hmm. I think we had a lot of shared mission statements from the beginning. Yeah. And Stephen, I want to ask you, you know, from your perspective, I mean, I have the benefit of being an investor in Arbitrum. So, you know, full disclosure there. Uh, I'm quite familiar with all the work that you guys have been doing. I think a lot of people, to your point, don't really realize that it's been years in development. Uh, and Arbitrum really, people started learning about it, you know, kind of less than a year ago, I guess. And now it's grown to, for across many metrics, the most popular L2, and you launched Nitro. Um, how does the acquisition change the game for you guys uh, based on your roadmap? And, and what can we expect you know, going forward now that you've combined these forces? Yeah, so you know, let me, I uh, guess, take um, Raul's last example and g give you uh, uh, an example of how we can, like, how we're approaching the same problems from different angles. So Raul mentioned EIP 4844, which is going to lower 
uh, one of our biggest biggest costs, which is a data cost on Ethereum. And that's something which is uh, you know useful across across the Ethereum ecosystem. It's not just limited to us. It's really, you know, it's a multi-team effort that we're participating in, but really very valuable for, for lots of people. Nitro, which you mentioned, this this big upgrade we launched. One of the one of the um, features of Nitro was advanced compression, which is using less data on Ethereum. So there, this same problem, which is, hey, uh, one of the largest costs on Arbitrum is the data we put in Ethereum and the cost to store that data. How do we solve that? So the layer two solution, the Nitro solution, says let's use less data, right? Let's compress it more and really eke out um, and you know the amount of data that we need per transaction, get that to the minimum. So therefore the costs go down because we're using less data. Complementary to that, but but getting at the same problem is, you know, the work that Raul mentioned on EIP 48404 and other similar initiatives, which is let's get the cost of the data that you have to use lower. And it's really the combination of these two that will uh, allow us to have the lowest cost, right? When we get the data to the cheapest point, point, point that it can be, but also using the minimal amount of data that we need to do, um, we will be at our optimal cost. And that's just one, you know, actually very in the weeds example, but I think it's a, it's a good, it's a really good, um, you know, way to think about, way to see what we, how we can complement each other. We can take the same problem and come at it in different angles. And I think that's very, very valuable. And over time, you'll see, I think, you know, we're just starting, right? This acquisition, we announced it quite quickly. So we're, it's really the very, very early days of us working together. Um, but we'll see, we're already, we're already seeing in these, just the conversations, just the meeting, bringing of the minds together, there's so much that we can learn from each other and so many ways to tackle these problems because really we do have these very aligned goals uh, of doing that. You know, we're also very excited to have Prism now under Offchain Labs um, umbrella and to continue to support that. And that's really something which you mentioned before, how do you think about supporting uh, these open source projects? And our, our commitment is Prism will remain open source and we will fund it. So that's um, something that we're excited to do uh, for the community and continue to do for the community. And uh, one thing that Raul and, and Preston have told me that at least, you know, from the few uh, the weeks that we've already spent together is that they already have more of their time to focus on prison development because a lot of the their previous overhead has been been reduced, which is very exciting to us. So, you know, all in all, we're excited to for prison, you know, to continue to fund Prism as an open source and neutral project, but there are so many synergies that we can have both from the way that we think about it, the way that we approach the problems, and also the different angles that we have to really um, tackled our shared goal, which is scale Ethereum, mm -hmm. build a scalable layer one solution and a layer two solution that sits on top of that, that can scale smart contracts and also make it user-friendly, developer-friendly, and really uh, open and accessible. Yeah. Maybe I, I want to take a pause here because I don't think a lot of people um, really know what it is uh, to work uh, in open source, kind of like for Ethereum, if you will, like you developing like a an Ethereum client. Um it feels like on one side, you know, Arbitrum, you guys were funded and working on an L2 and, you know, you sort of deployed and, and that was that. And on, an, on on the other perspective, you know, something like Prismatic Labs is working with the Ethereum community, perhaps more, it's it's more delicate dance and trying to everyone to kind of agree on a particular standard. And, you know, the coordination is much, much more challenging, I think. Um, and so I am curious to get your perspective, Raul, on on what it what it looks like to kind of work on open source how difficult was it if you can give us kind of the inside perspective on how difficult it was to get the ethereum community to to agree on you know the merge and then now on towards an eye of like how do new eips really get kind of developed and implemented 
Yeah, one big challenge is definitely coordination. You know, Ethereum has been has been long criticized for being very slow to innovate, and I think that you know that that, that criticism is warranted to to a big extent. Um, you know, I think Ethereum's governance has has been has been pretty pretty fluid and flexible over the years, and I think it's it's got it's gotten to a point where I think it's a lot stronger than ever. Um, we have a lot of different teams that are that are voicing their opinions that bring really good arguments and points as to what the future of Ethereum should be. You know, it's like there is no, you know, there is no boss in Ethereum, right? It's contrary to popular belief, Vitalik doesn't have a master node in his bedroom that he can turn off the chain. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, it, it's it's been really great to see how, how you know, how, how many really great ideas and perspectives there are in, in protocol development. Um, we have, you know, we have been navigating this, uh, this kind of this messy kind of world of ideas for almost, uh, I think, five years at this point. Um, so we bring a lot of perspective into how to navigate Ethereum's future upgrades. Um, so by kind of by representing off-chain labs, uh, we can kind of uh, bring a lot of bring a lot of ideas from their perspective into the protocol and uh, and try to try to basically try to uh, try to coordinate with other parties uh, to decide whether or not these are good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the really great thing is that you know there is one thing to chat about is that. Um, we don't have like absolute power over the protocol by any means. There are, like I said, many different teams with different interests, and that's really that's really great. Um, so working on open source has been challenging. Uh, we've been navigating it for a few years, and we feel very comfortable with kind of how to propose new ideas to Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And we think that you know joining forces with Offchain will just give us a lot more capacity to do that, and uh, and just do things in the best interest of the protocol. Mm-hmm. So Stephen. Um... You know, we touched about the on this earlier. Um, you know, Arbitrum recently released uh, the Nitro update. Um, I'm curious, what are the next kind of big ticket items um, on the on the roadmap? Um, what's next on the scaling frontier for you guys? Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, the way Nitro came about, by the way, wasn't even like a year ago. We said, okay, you know, this the big design spec. We're going to launch, you know, Nitro. It was really. Uh, us thinking and going back and saying, okay, we, we launched the first uh, optimistic world up, code complete into production. You know, how can we improve it? Um, how can we improve it from a cost perspective, from a node resources perspective, right? across many, many different metrics? And that's what Nitro came out of. It really came out of this goal to say, you know, there's this tendency, uh, especially uh, you know, last year coming out of, it was August 31st that we launched and actually if you look at the Nitro code base, the first commit to the production Nitro code base was made September 7th. So seven days or September 8th, seven or eight days after we launched, uh, you know, this big, the biggest uh, event in our company history, our company was three years old already and just put its first code into production. Um, we were already thinking about and actually committing code to making it better and really replacing large parts of it. And that's basically the mindset that we have. There's a tendency to say, okay, we did it. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're ahead, we have a lot of adoption, um, the technology looks good, but we constantly want to try want to think ahead and think how do we get even better? Because the reason the reason is, you know, the basic reason, you know, scaling is really a, a relative term, right? So you scale and then more users come and then more demand comes. And then um, if you stay, if the capacity stays where it was, the prices go up. Now you still scale, even if, if you 10X your capacity and you know, 10x demand comes, you still have 10x capacity, but the prices will continue to go up. And usually when people ask for a scaling solution, they want one that has excess capacity so the prices can remain you know, relatively low um, and stable as well. So um, it, you know, a big question that we have is, okay, so we did Nitro and we increased our capacity on the order of uh, 7 to 10x. Can we do even better, right? And we also lowered our fees in there. Can we, can we do this again? Because mm-hmm. despite what the market conditions might you know, say now, 
we're pretty bullish on the future of Ethereum and the future of smart contracts. And we're sure that demand is only going to continue to increase. And we're constantly thinking ahead because what happens is otherwise you don't think that. And then when the market does pop back, people come and yeah. say, hey, where were you guys? You weren't working for the past year and a half? It was like, well, you know, so we're, we're very much thinking ahead. And um, how do we do the equivalent of Nitro again? How do we get even better scaling? And um, there are also some other 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 things we're working on as well. So scaling, obviously, we are in a very good place now. But mm-hmm. you know, there's a list of different things in order to make like this Ethereum and, and and Arbitrum the best platform. There's like a list of things you need to do, and you solve the top one, and then the second and third one um, become you know most important too. So the things that come to mind are uh, questions around state growth and state bloat and how to manage that. Right. So a lot of the scaling that we've done now is focused really on computation. Um, but the state of these blockchains continue to grow. Are there a way that we can, via, say, light clients or other initiatives, manage state better so people can participate in the network without um, incre- you know, ever increasing state? And also we can increase the capacity of the network in a way that's inclusive and does, you, know, you don't need to run these like mega nodes that have um, you know, mega capacity. That's one. And, and the other thing that is big on, on our roadmap is a very general principle. There are many projects that, that are aligned to this, but making the um, developer and user experience even better, right? Today, we, we match in many ways the Ethereum developer experience, and we're very, very proud of that. And, uh, you know, it's really an incredible experience, and it's, it's incredible that we're able to do that inside a layer two roll-up. You know, there's this very complex machine that allows you to replicate, you know, the full EVM experience on top of the EVM, and Nitro, you know, basically takes us to as close or as equivalent to Ethereum as possible. Mm-hmm. But then there are questions are, the question becomes, are there things that we can do and innovate in the layer two space that are even faster, that, that you know, get us to an even better place in Ethereum? It's not to say that any of the Ethereum compatibility will go away. It won't. Um, and that will always be there. But can we you know, make this uh, platform even more friendly to developers, than to onboard new developers and to onboard new users? Mm-hmm. And that's you know, a big question in our mind. So you know, EVM compatibility and equivalence is, is critically important. Mm-hmm. But can we supplement that? And you know, as Raul mentioned before, um, Ethereum sometimes, and for very good reason, takes uh, you know time to innovate. But are there other some of these pending EIPs or these Ethereum improvement proposals that we can maybe adopt first in a roll-up? Even that would be really interesting. And these are things that we're looking at very closely. Yeah. yeah. To add on to that, I think you know the essence is that we care about EVM equivalence and and being really close to Ethereum for the security for security aspects. So we want to make sure that. When you withdraw from L2 to L1, you know, all those security guarantees are there and you're not making, you're not, you're not cutting corners. Right. But you know, that that's, that's, that's really all we need. We can do, we can do a lot of crazy innovation on L2 itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of, that as long as we maintain those security guarantees and we can maintain a friendliness to developers, you can do a lot of really, really cool things on L2 and you can move faster on many fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always a, del- a delicate balancing act, but um, you can do you can do a lot uh, as long as you maintain that base constraint of security at L1 uh, through fraud proofs. Yeah. So Stephen, uh, I've heard you say before, um, there's been great progress on ZK EVMs. Uh, there's a few projects uh, that have been focusing on that, but, um, you know, you said that we aren't kind of ready for prime time. Uh, and as far as I can remember, you know, zero knowledge proofs have been kind of really fascinating. Uh, however, you know, I would tend to agree with you that it's been kind of slow to, to come about. Uh, I am curious, as Arbitrum started to work on uh, ZK tech, is this part of your roadmap at some point? Um, and, and or do you remain kind of in the optimistic rollout camp? That's a great question. So first, I'll mention that, you know, from my background, you know, I mentioned I started off at Princeton. 
I was doing cryptographic research there. I actually wrote papers on zero knowledge proof systems, signature schemes using zero knowledge proof systems. Um, um, and, and, you know, did a lot of, of early work, a lot of work in MPC as well, multi-party, multi-party computation. So definitely did not come into, you know, um, the Arbitrum problem with a bias against ZK or advanced cryptography. So we came in with a very open mind and our decision, you know, back some time ago when we started looking at this, but also today is ZK technology is very exciting and very promising. And, and I'd even go further and say the pace of innovation there, um, definitely is, is very fast and, and surprise definitely would surprise the five years uh, ago myself right so mm-hmm. um i five years ago would not have expected the innovation that we've seen but i think we're still breakthroughs away from a zk system that's uh um, competitive with an optimistic roll-up and to go uh, a level deeper what do i mean by competitive uh, among a few axes number one is price the cost of running the the transactions the cost is is on on any ZK design that I've seen today is orders of magnitude higher than on an optimistic rollup. Uh, and by the way, what I mean by this is, you know, because it gets a little bit confusing sometimes, people like to talk about the cost of verifying ZK transactions. That's the lower cost. And that's the cost you see on the blockchain. But remember, the blockchain is handed this proof. And then the question is, who created this proof? And that's where the computational problem is. That's where the really heavy machinery is and the part that's a bit opaque to users. And users might say, well, it's okay because there's someone that's generating it for me, so I don't have to worry about this. But that's actually not a great approach because you want these systems to be sustainable. And you want to know, hey, how much does it cost to generate that proof? I'm happy that you're doing it, whoever you know you are. I'm happy that you're generating this for us, but how much does it cost you? And the reason you want to know that is because what happens if you go away? Or what happens if your funding source goes away? We're building scaling technology, and you need to scale sustainably. Right? It's right. not sustainable to say, Scaling technology is funded by this VC because that money won't last forever and you don't want to get to a place where, oh, they've cornered the market by making it really cheap, but now they're going to increase. In some industries, that's the right strategy, right? Right, You you know, think about Amazon and diapers.com, right? These strategies have played out well over time, but when the thing you're selling is scaling technology, you really want to make sure that it's paying for the cost of those systems. So Mm -hmm. uh, proving cost is one and also compatibility. Zero knowledge proof systems today don't work on this, the the VM architectures that we run natively on, like EVM, or um, really any other um, you know virtual um, virtual machine design or, or typical computer machine design. They run on circuits, and any any um, any any attempt to take uh, an EVM or another similar um, you know um, co- popular um, VM structure and and you know, apply it to these systems, it's basically attacking on lever- levels of compilers and levels of inefficiency, and sometimes just incompatibilities. You just, you know, you can't always, um, you know, fit, fit the, uh, the EVM you want into the circuitry needed for ZK. And what you have is, you know, then extra inefficiencies, extra costs, but also just incompatibilities. And the question then becomes, um, you know, when can we have this technology in a way that's competitive, both from cost and compatibility. And to date, it's not clear to me that, that, that we'll get there. But the thing about us to answer the second half of your question, you know, Wait, are we just married? to hear you say that we'll get there or that we'll ever get there, or is there a state where we will get there? Similarly yes, to or, how you were thinking about scalability even before Ethereum. And now, you know, we're here with ORs. I'm not sure that, 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 that will, that will get there to be honest with ZK to a point where it's cost competitive. Um, we're definitely breakthroughs away, but I'm not sure that we won't either. Honestly, I, I don't really know. We're definitely not there today. That's what I do know. There are some incredibly smart people working on this and making really good progress. So 
Um, I would not be shocked if at some point um, we got there. There are fun, some, again, some fundamental incompatibilities and, and really breakthroughs that need to be made to get to actually get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, based on the pace of innovation, I wouldn't say it's impossible that we get there yeah. uh, at all. I'm, I'm not sure, but we're definitely not there today. And so when, when I think, so what, how do I approach this problem or what do we right, think yeah. about it? I'll take Nitro as an example. So if you look at the Arbitrum paper, 2018 Arbitrum Princeton research paper, that's when we published the paper uh, at Usenix Security, which is a, a um, academic uh, security conference. One of the key innovations was the Arbitrum virtual machine. Really great piece of technology was optimized to get these one-step fraud proofs to be really, really small. It, it was really nice. And it was probably the thing that got that paper into this conference. Usenix is a top conference. It has a high acceptance, you know, very low acceptance rate. And, and that's probably the big innovation there. Nitro, with Nitro, we actually retired the ABM. And literally, Ed, Harry, and I spent years working on this piece of technology only to retire it. So you might think like Nitro was a sad day for me or us, but it really wasn't. It was an extremely happy day. And the reason is, you know, we're not coming into this pro- pro- into this problem or into this, um, you know, in, into this uh, project. We're not coming in saying we need to use this particular tool. I'm not coming in saying optimistic is the way to go. I'm not coming in saying ZK is the way to go. I'm saying we have a real problem. And we have users, by the way, that want a solution to that problem today. They don't want to wait. They want a solution today. And they want the best technology available today. And by the way, in five years, they're going to want the best technology available in five years. And I can promise you this, whether I'm a ZK Maxi or an optimistic Maxi, it doesn't matter. In five years, all this stuff is going to look primitive. Like That's you look right. back five years ago, what we were like writing in these uh, even smart contract discussion boards, it looks early, it looks primitive, and we know so much more today, and that will be the case in five years. Mm-hmm. So I can guarantee you that, you know, um, at least in terms of you know, my thoughts on where development will be across every platform, five years from now, Arbitrum won't look like, like Arbitrum today. No optimistic will look like any optimistic sy- system today. And no ZK system will look like the ones they do today. Um, and that's why, so our, our commitment is we will continue to develop and utilize the best and technology available at that time, but with a commitment to... Um, delivering this scale to users and making sure that it's usable. Because if you tell the user, like, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there, it's like, give me what you have today and continue to know, get the plane in the air and work on the engine while you're, that's what users actually want. Mm-hmm. And so that's our commitment. And now your question might be like, okay, so is that going to be ZK in five years? I really don't know. I'm yeah, sure yeah. it will be much, you know, uh, many innovations on top of what we do today. And some of those we're already working on in-house, but I don't know if it'll be ZK. And I think that's one of our strengths. So if you look at mm-hmm. many of our competitors, particularly it, really across the optimistic and ZK space, the name of their company is often like that technology is the wow. tool is is inscribed there. Your ZK this or something that has it's like the, or the dot com businesses, right? Pets.com or you know, like dot com. Yes, that's very much. And now they do these dot like, Zeke. <laughs> Yes, and now these all, by the way, like it's funny. I was actually looking at these like like I think drugstore.com like goes yeah. to Walgreens. Like it's yeah, it's like why are we talking about the tool? We should be talking about the thing we want to deliver to mm-hmm. users. And that's really, um, you know, that's really our, our approach. Off-chain yeah. labs wants to deliver scaling that utilizes off-chain technologies. <clears throat> those could be ZK technologies. Those could be optimistic technologies, but that's mm-hmm. what we're really committed to. And we have, you know, and if ZK comes through and those breakthroughs happen, and I'm putting myself on the record here, I will not eat my words. I will embrace that fully and be happy right. to be part of it. I just haven't seen that today. And we have a mission to deliver the best technology to users today mm-hmm. and continue to do that in the future. Yeah, I guess like um, it's a complex question, right? Because I think what I, I'm curious to get your perspective on is, you know, we've reached these huge milestones with Nitro um, and other L2s, um, which have increased the capacity of Ethereum in a meaningful way. Can you just put some more context for users around that? Um, you know, how much, 
there, there are a number of like metrics, some which are vanity, some which are not more substantial when we talk about scalability and you bring up a great point around the sustainability of said scalability. I am curious, how many users uh, could Ethereum support today? Right now, we're in a bear market now, but you know, in a raging bull market, we have NFTs, we have gaming, we have DeFi. I'm curious, like, how do you think about the capacity of Nitro today and other L2s um, for users like to try to kind of wrap their head around kind of can Ethereum support X or Y? Yeah, so I guess I'll I'll, I'll start there, and Raul, please please chime in if you have any thoughts. Um, so Nitro, actually, it's it's pretty easy to say to compare it to the capacity of Ethereum. Nitro does about seven x the capacity of Ethereum, or I should say, it has the capacity, the capabilities to do seven x the capacity to, of Ethereum before it starts to congest. And um, we actually have another network called Arbitrum Nova, which is focused on gaming, and um, you know Reddit did a, a big launch mm -hmm. on on that. That's another 7x capacity. And, and you, you know, there are other, obviously other rollups and other scaling solutions all sit on top of Ethereum as well. So, you know, in terms of, and, and you know, I didn't really answer your questions in terms of, because what, what people like to do is they like to use this TPS or transactions per second mm -hmm. metric. And then you like look and say, what are these transactions? And usually they use like null transactions. Like, oh, that's not helpful. So yeah. 7x the capacity of Ethereum is, is, is more meaningful. And the, and the way we measure that, by the way, is, is gas per second. Right. And that's the actual metric that Ethereum uses. And that's the metric that we actually meter. So you can have a, trans, a block that uses um, a lot of, you know, a single transaction, or you can have a block that's, you know, thousands of transactions. It doesn't matter um, because um, the, the, the true resource that we're really measuring and this is the one that we're gas. metering around is gas per second. And so mm -hmm. Nitro does, Arbitrum Nitro does about 7 million gas per second, whereas Ethereum does. Um, roughly 1 million gas per second. And by, by the way, um, a, a lot of that is, is, is that's why 7 million, it really shows around sustainability. That's the place where we believe it can be sustainable. The software can, can support, um, you know, higher than that. You'll, you'll see there are some alternative layer ones that actually take Ethereum software and go much higher than that. But, um, you know, we believe that sustainability is key. So we're not comfortable making it higher than that until we solve some of these data problems. Uh, because mm -hmm. again, we want this to be a system not that as a, we have a very long-term vision. We're mm -hmm. not looking to okay turn it up, make trade, you know, subsidize transactions, make it super mm -hmm. low, and then the system just falls over in a year or two. That that's not winning um, for us. We're thinking about mm -hmm. setting up a sustainable system that can last for mm -hmm. uh, you know decades and 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 beyond. Where where does that go with EIP four eight four four? It's a great question. Well, imagine that all of a sudden um you know you get you get this like this two order magnitude reduction in, in the biggest cost that arbitrum faces to l1 right so that cost directly manifests on users today like when you pay a fee you know you you know you're you're basically amortizing the cost of l1 and l2 uh you know transaction fees and capacity onto users imagine if all of a sudden applications get 100x cheaper right overall uh it's it, it's so much you can do and i see this in terms of the ability that to do things that are not even possible on Ethereum today, uh, applications that just have high throughput requirements, you know, financial applications, games, right? Like mm -hmm. famously, there's there's this game called Dark Forest that runs on on this Gnosis mm -hmm. chain. That's um, is a pretty popular game that you know on, on kind of on even on an Ethereum compatible blockchain, but it just you know the the team cannot ship it to Ethereum L1 because it's so expensive, and uh, every every transaction that people do on that game goes on chain. And that's not possible in L1, right? With with L2 and, and with things like Nova and even with you know that you know EIP4044 will bring just such a reduction in that that the next bottleneck would just be execution. 
um, and, and be basically transaction execution. So I think about it in terms of what are things that are not even possible to do today when you get 10x, 100x cheaper, like, wow, it opens up such a new design space that mm -hmm. I don't even know what people will use it for. Uh, <laughs> but I'm excited for that option. You know? All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Uh, I want to transition a little bit. In March, you announced this concept of Arbitrum uh, AnyTrust chains. Um, can you introduce that concept and how you see these chains kind of playing a role in Ethereum's scalability future? Yeah, and actually, it's a really good transition because it really dire directly relates to the previous conversation around 4844. AnyTrust chains are just like Arbitrum roll-up chains. So, so actually, let me just do a second of terminology, mm -hmm. right? So we have technologies and then we have chains. We have two technologies that we develop, Arbitrum Rollup, which is also a type of optimistic rollup. That's one set of technology that we build on. And then the one you just mentioned, which I'll talk about is Arbitrum AnyTrust. And we also have two public blockchains. We have Arbitrum One, which is our, our rollup chain. Um, that's the chain that lost last August 31st, which many people just call Arbitrum, mm -hmm. uh, technically called Arbitrum One. And then there's Arbitrum Nova, which is uh, our public AnyTrust chain. Right? So we have chains and technologies, so just to um, uh, make that clear. So what is Arbitrum AnyTrust technology? So it solves the same problem of, so EIP-4844 is getting on, you know, Arbitrum's large, Arbitrum rollup's large cost is putting all this data on chain. And, and, and again, so the layer one way to, to, to look at that problem is, hey, let's try to make this data, data a lot cheaper. Um, we asked ourselves, is there, are there other solutions here? And we weren't going to, take the data off Ethereum and Arbitrum 1. We want Arbitrum 1 to remain a roll-up. We said, can we build another chain or another technology uh, another, another technology that doesn't put all that data on-chain but still provides a high level of security? And, and that's what Arbitrum AnyTrust is. So what it does is, instead of putting all the data on Ethereum, it uses um, an, a committee and sends the data to this data availability committee. And as the AnyTrust name implies, it requires you not to trust the entire committee, but only a minimally trusted set of the committee. Think you only have to trust one or two members of the committee, and then you know that the data will be available. And the committee is doing this. They're just saying, yes, we're storing the data. Mm -hmm. And then rather sending the data to Ethereum, 
you're sending these signatures to Ethereum. The committee members are signing and saying, I will provide you the data if you need it. And that's what gets sent to Ethereum. And the question then is, um, how do we get confidence here? Who is the committee? And in practice, we set it up with a, remember, you don't have to trust the whole committee. So you want a variety of players that everyone will have comfort. Like, oh, I trust Web2 people, so I trust them. I trust Web3 companies, so I trust them. So who's on the committee in practice? It's Offchain Labs. So um, us, it's, it's uh, Reddit. It's uh, Consensus, it's P2P, uh, Lido, it's mm -hmm. Google, Cloud, and um, also FTX and QuickNote. So a nice, uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people that trust some and don't trust others, right. and there are a lot of different, but hopefully the idea is that everyone can get comfort in someone in that committee and say, oh, I trust them, and they're going to give me the data if need be. Mm -hmm. um, so is Arbitrum any trust chain or roll-up? It is not. Um, it is, put, but it's a lot more secure than than a side chain because, or a, an alternative layer one. In these solutions, you have your own consensus. You typically require two thirds of the validators to be honest. Mm -hmm. But here, you require again this antitrust property. You just need to have, um, um, you know, one or two of these members being honest, and and you and you trust them, and and then everything works. But interestingly, and, and you know, I don't know the answer to this. Um, if EIP four eight four four succeeds and the data cost becomes super super low on Ethereum, you know maybe this just becomes a roll up. And actually, one of the one of the affordances that we built in this has a fallback to roll up even today. So if the committee stops operating, Arbitrum AnyTrust chains, so Arbitrum Nova doesn't just stop running; it just becomes a roll up and again it just starts putting all that data in Ethereum. So you can imagine in a world where the Ethereum, you know, where Raul and and his team succeeds and you know get the uh, Ethereum data cost really low, we're going to say, well, revisit this and say, hey, let's just turn off the committee. And then basically the chain will just become a roll up at that point. It will start putting data on Ethereum and um, maybe at some point that will become feasible. But today, um, and just to say, so why did we build this? Like we have these two products, are they, are they competitive? Why did mm -hmm. we build this? The, the real reason is um, we weren't trying to compete with ourselves or we think roll up security is, is the gold standard. And for you know the DeFi projects that we have, you know we have a very very strong DeFi ecosystem, very strong NFT ecosystem. Those those players should stay. Um, those those projects should stay on Arbitrum One. The conversation with Nova was was really around g gaming and social projects. These mm -hmm. weren't projects that were coming to us and saying, "Hey, I could launch an Arbitrum One, but I you know you have something a little bit cheaper." These were projects that were saying, "I really want to be an Ethereum. I really want to be an Arbitrum." But the problem is I'm a game and even paying 10 cents per transaction, it just doesn't work. And they weren't like making this, you can be all principles and philosophical. You should believe in Ethereum. It's like, okay, but like I am a game and I want to, a game has to be fun first. And if a user's wallet is getting drained, that's not so much fun. So it was really around those people that were, they weren't choosing between Ethereum and, oh, now, and, 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 you know, Arbitrum One. They were saying, we're going to go to an alternative solution that has lower security. We said, hey, can we give them something that has a lot of very high security as well? And, and that's what we developed with Arbitrum, uh, any trust chains, and particularly Arbitrum Nova. Yeah, I, I guess you 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 touched there at the end on something that I wanted to kind of switch a little bit on from the user perspective, and what kind of kind of things you're seeing on the ground in terms of the applications that are getting traction, the type of user behavior that is happening once people bridge over to Arbitrum. Um, maybe if you can comment on kind of. From your perspective, there are multiple L2s. There are other kind of L1s. Uh, I understand we're in a difficult kind of environment, if you will, bear market. Let's just call it as, as it is. But what will be the key to attract users and applications to Arbitrum? Like how competitive is it versus other L2s, other L1s? What's been really resonating with projects when you go to them and, and really kind of convince them to deploy an Arbitrum uh, versus another chain? Or maybe they're doing multiple deployments. 
So a lot of it starts from the the technology, which is the technology is feature complete. You know, we're in beta mode today. We have administrative controls, and we're we're you know we're we're comfortable. We you know we we disclose that on top of every page, but the technology is there, feature complete, fully code complete, and it's the only roll up that that can actually uh, say that today. And um, you know that brings a lot of confidence to people that you know the code is there. They can look at it. They can they can run it, and um, you know the the. The technology is is advanced, and in many ways, our team is really leading the rollup space. You know, like the our interactive fraud proofs have now become the standard, not just for Arbitrum, but for all um, optimistic rollups. And all optimistic rollups are working towards building a system that uses the uh, interactive fraud proofs that we uh, innovated in the rollup context. Um, but the truth is that that's a lot of it. I think that's how we got here. But also, you know, to be very honest. One of the one of the, the nice things about the blockchain space is this synchronous uh, call. The synchronous calls that you can do. You can have these interactions, right? These uh, particularly in DeFi, these uh, multi-app interactions that happen um, atomically, and a, a lot of that is also, you know, there's a lot of network effects and ecosystem that just sort of uh, continues to build. You want to be where other DeFi projects are, and one thing that we're seeing on Arbitrum One, Arbitrum One has really become you know, a DeFi stronghold where many or most DeFi projects are looking there and, you know, excited to build on top of these other projects and and, and build with them. One particular uh, area that I think Arbitrum is particularly strong is in the um, derivatives or perpetual market. We have mm-hmm. uh, strong projects like GMX and Mycelium and, and a bunch of others as well that are doing uh, incredible work. So I would say DeFi innovation is happening on Arbitrum. And, and I think the starting point is People want security, particularly when it comes to financial applications. They want Ethereum security. They want a team that's building on the roadmap to, to a, a fully to a fully operational uh, and fully decentralized roadmap. And they have confidence in our team to deliver that. But also uh, a lot of it is then the network effect where it just Arbitrum is a hub of DeFi innovation. And because so much of DeFi is, you know, is these are these interactions, you need to be where these others are. And there's also a lot of liquidity on the chain as well, which helps. Um, we also have incredibly strong NFT uh, ecosystems on the platform. Treasure Marketplace and the Treasure Small Brains, if you're familiar with, these have uh, one of the early Arbitrum NFT projects. And I think in the month of January or February, the Treasure Marketplace on Arbitrum was the number two marketplace by volume anywhere. Uh, OpenSea was was first, and then Treasure Marketplace was was um, was second. And now, actually, just recently, just a few weeks ago, OpenSea launched an Arbitrum. I think that's going to also continue to f- fuel the um, NFT ecosystem in Arbitrum. It's definitely a lot earlier than than, than the DeFi ecosystem, but there's it's already quite strong, and um, you know a lot of strong projects that are that are building on there and continuing to build on there as well. I'm curious, how does the merge kind of change the usability of Ethereum? Does it really, from a user standpoint, does it really change anything? Uh, we, of course, dispelled recently that it doesn't really improve scalability. It's just like set, maybe lays a different foundation for it. But uh, this is something that we talk about a lot within the community. But, you know, for someone that is not as deep into crypto, uh, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about yeah. how important that is. I'd say there are, there are like two like really, really concrete changes that, um, you know, people are going to start to see more. And one of them is that Ethereum has always had variable block times, right? And, and you know, the function of proof of work, like you have... Sometimes blocks happening at you know nine seconds, uh, fifteen seconds. Um, you know that 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 variance has been reduced over time a little bit. But uh, with Ethereum, with the merge, actually now you have fixed block time. So there there will there will always be a block in Ethereum. Um, you know at, at twelve second intervals. 
Um, you know, some blocks could be missed if uh, if, a, if a validator fails to propose a block, but that's one concrete change for applications, right? Previously, it's been it's been a pain for developers sometimes having these variable block times. So having these fixed intervals is pretty nice. Second thing that happens is now Ethereum has built-in light client support. Um, that is basically um, now you can you can run a very lightweight kind of node. And how lightweight are we talking? Well, like only a few hundred, maybe like a hundred kilobytes of data per day. Mm-hmm. Meaning you can probably run this in like a smart toaster or, or on like a pocket watch um, that validates and follows the actual blockchain. Uh, so some really cool things you can do is when you use something like MetaMask or Infura, you can actually you can actually validate that the data that this third party is giving you is this is the correct data from the blockchain. So like if I request, hey, what is my account balance on, you know, or, or this or how much uh, show me my trade history on Uniswap, uh, you can actually verify against your local node that this data is correct and has a lot more data integrity. So it gives a lot more security than we had before and gives users more agency in verifying data, which is pretty, pretty cool and pretty concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, like a recent project uh, plugin for MetaMask, I think, came out recently or a project launch that lets you um, build a safer MetaMask or something. Uh, it's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty neat. Um, you know, but more, more, imp- more importantly, I think the merge really sets the foundation for the next big upgrades to Ethereum, which is, which is this upgrade that will lower the cost of rollups. Uh, there are some really cool things on the horizon for... Um, just, uh, just, just better scalability for Ethereum. So actually, like uh, what we call sharding of data, mm-hmm. just coming out, uh, and uh, better, you know, better things around censorship resistance. So that's a big one. It's a bit been a big topic recently in Ethereum, with uh, you know, like top people talking about OFAC and blocks being censored at the protocol layer due to like uh, flash bots and things like that. So there are big things on the horizon that will just that would just make the protocol a lot stronger and more censorship resistant. And the merge sets the foundation for that as we just, as we just spoke. Yeah, definitely. Um, Steven, I want to switch the conversation now a little bit to your perspective on, which I think is super instrumental. We talk about gaming, we talk about social applications. Uh, I'd be remiss not to talk about Reddit and, and how important that is. Uh, so maybe if you can just talk about you know, the conversations that happen with Reddit and other similar enterprises, what they're prioritizing. There's certainly a lot of, um, I think, still hesitation from a lot of companies because of regulatory risk, technology risk, there continues to be hacks. There's, you know, crypto is not an easy environment. We're still very early and these things, you know, break and have bugs and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we, we had this moment in 2017 where there was a lot of announcements of companies going into blockchain, but not crypto. And, but now you're seeing folks like Reddit roll out these community points. So is it real? Do you think that enterprises are appreciating the innovations that are happening from the scalability front? And what can we expect, you know, going forward? Um, do, are we going to see more Reddit? What does a Reddit deployment look like? It's a, it's a lot there. So maybe you could just, um, you know, comment on it. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, you know, the history of, of actually our uh, relationship with Reddit goes, that, goes back about two and a half years or, or a little less, two years in July to... Um, to a public, what they call the great Reddit scaling bake-off. And Reddit said, hey, we have this idea when this is community points, right? This idea of having a decentralized point system. So you contribute to communities, you talk, you comment, you post, et cetera. You get these points and then you can actually own your points. So they don't um, sit in a centralized database, but they're actually blockchain points, which means once they're granted to you, um, Reddit or anyone else can't you know, take them away from you or shut down your account and you lose them. But it also means they're more portable. Right, so you can 
have another developer building an experience around Reddit's community points because they're all open and, and live on the blockchain. And Reddit's like, we have this idea, um, how can we scale this? And about 20 some odd teams um, submitted uh, proposals to this. And then a year later, so July of 2021 was when Reddit said, okay, we've chosen to go with Arbitrum for this. And then uh, this past summer was when they actually launched it on our Arbitrum Nova mainnet. And you know the reason actually why I think it's such an interesting application is because it shows how how enterprises I think are thinking about blockchains today, and it, which is very different than what you were thinking about it in say 2017 or, tw or 2018. A 2017 or 2018 version of this would be like, hey, let's take the entirety of Reddit and move it onto the blockchain. Right? That was like the a lot of the nuance in the conversations. Like I'm sure you've seen, certainly as an investor, I'm sure you've seen proposals that let's take all your your healthcare data and put it on the blockchain. Um, yeah, so, so like a lot of these, a lot of these proposals were very early and not very nuanced. It was like this new technology, let's just swap it out and use it. Whereas this is a much more mature proposal and a much more mature uh, system being built, which is like, no, Reddit's fine. Cause there, there's a lot of good reasons to have web, you know, web three is not replacing web two. It's complementing web two. I think that's something people miss, yeah, right? You have to point. find, yeah, where are the synergies, right? Where are, what are the, where are the ways that you can complement this? And that's where, you know, gaming, that's why the problem of gaming and, and the cost of gaming, by the way, is so, is so difficult and such a hard problem because in 2017, you would say, wow, look, I built this game on a blockchain. So what that the, the, you know, it, it, every move costs $5. So what um, if like you have to wait 15 seconds every time you press a button, but because the, the people playing then were the enthusiasts and they were excited about these games. Mm -hmm. 2022, moving into 2023, we're talking, you know, gaming studios that are really developing for the mass market. And you know what? We have to accept that it's okay that many of their users are just looking for a good game. They, they don't really care about the under, yeah. underlying infrastructure. They might, not, may, they might not want to touch the blockchain. So our number one um, focus has to be not making the experience worse for those users, right? Not mm -hmm. Blockchain should be additive only, um, not degrading the experience for those users. And that's mm -hmm. true. Um, I think that's what we see in Reddit. So right in Reddit, if you want, want to be a, a user and continue, even in these communities that have community points, you don't have to, to touch the blockchain. If you're, if you're happy with Reddit, just telling you this is your points balance, you don't have to go and take custody of them on the blockchain. But for those mm -hmm. users that want to do that, that's available to them. And it's available mm -hmm. to them at a, at a low cost as well. So it's these really nice synergies. And it's also very, you know, it, it's, it's nice. It's, it's clearly additive, right? You can now have an ecosystem. I can build a game and say, hey, the currency of my game are these community points. Like that's right. very powerful. And the ecosystems you can build around this are powerful. And that's why I'm excited about it. But I think, yeah, the thing that, that generalizes to gaming and enterprises in general is the maturity of these conversations, not going ahead and saying, what if I just move my entire stack to, to, to the blockchain, but thinking more nuanced, is there any part of the blockchain? It could be really small, but that can actually make my web two app or web two experience better. And I think in many cases, the answer is yes. But it takes um, nuanced discussion to find what is that application and is it additive and does it hurt other users? Because these are the, the places you have to think. Because, you know, we have to be very open and honest about the fact that not every user is going to want to touch the blockchain. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean the technologies don't add a lot of value. Yeah. I yeah. guess that's such a... Okay, wanna, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I also want to add something about, you know, why, why we've been such, you know, our team has been such arbitrary maxis for a long time is that the technology is is simple. You know, I think that's really important also for institutions like it's it's easy to, to understand and can be explained on the back of a napkin. I think that's that's a huge advantage that really I think optimistic rollups have. And 
um, you know, when you have such a simple foundation, you can build so many great things upon that. You can attract a lot more people, um, you know, and I think, I think, you know, it's definitely one big advantage, I guess, over ZK technology. ZK technology is, is, is complex to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say there, you know, it's it, for, for develop from a developer perspective, I think simplicity always wins. Um, simplicity wins when you, when you, you can attract users to build on your platform. Uh, they understand what's going on. Um, they understand what they, you know, what they need to know is simple enough to grasp. And, um, and it's a lot easier to rationalize just how close to Ethereum it is. Um, to us, that's really important, uh, especially for, you know, applications building for institutions that are looking at the technology are able to grasp it and understand really, you know, just, just how elegant, how the solution is. Yeah. I'm going to ask a very basic question gets tossed around a lot. Steven, back to your example of Reddit, which is this community points. We talk a lot about why can't this just be a centralized database? And I'm curious, what would you say to that? Because that continues to be brought up again and again, right? So I'll give you a few examples of things that um, make it power, where it's powerful that it's not. One is, and I know I'm sure you've seen this story on other, platform, on other platforms or even on Reddit where users like work for years because a lot of users are very loyal to their communities and work for years in these points, but they don't really own the, own these points. And, you know, it could be a glitch. They did nothing wrong. Uh, and again, I'm not saying Reddit, but generally I've seen this on the internet and, you know, many different uh, forums where mm-hmm. they lose access and they have to start again. So actually, you know, you know the, in crypto, we say like, you know, it's not your, you know, your money, your keys, your keys, not your keys, not your, not, you know, not, you know, it's not your, uh, not your money, but that's true also um, for the, you know, the, you know the, the points and credits that you build on other platforms where, you know, you want, if you really, really want to know that when you wake up in the morning, um, they're still going to be there, um, then custody them yourself is the only way to do that. And, and again, many users might be content, you know, back to the Reddit case, not actually taking ownership of them. You don't have to go to the blockchain and claim these. There's no like button on Reddit that says, claim these points on, on Arbitrum or you lose them. It's you can claim these points on Arbitrum um, if you want to, but if you, you know, you don't actually have mm-hmm. to do that, which is, um, where I think, think it's an example of the additive only approach where it's helpful, mm-hmm. but it doesn't uh, hurt. And the, the other one is also um, the ability to open up the ecosystem to to other players as well. Right? You see this in like the airline industry, for example, where um, you have status on one airline and you want to get status on another and you can go through a process often to get that. But the idea being, you know, what are your, maybe, maybe I have a, I have a store and I say, here's a discount. I, I'm a big believer in this particular community. Here's a discount to anyone that, you know, that has some amount of points or some amount of credits in this community, right? You can actually do this because all the data is publicly verifiable. It's mm. public, it's open yeah. and you can do that. And you can do that in the metaverse as well, right? You can, mm-hmm. like I said before, build a game where you say the currency in my game uh, is these points. I want to build a game that's targeted at this particular community. There you go. You can do that. And now um, it exists there as opposed to, having to somehow otherwise um, build a link between, you know, the Reddit and the blockchain. Well, how do I know? And I need, I need to do some sort of Oracle service. And there are actually, mm-hmm. you know, some, some interesting solutions, some of which I've worked on in the academic sense. How do you bring this private data onto the blockchain? But, you know, for Reddit to actually be the issuer and do it, um, it just enables a very diverse ecosystem where they can use this as the base, but build well, well, well beyond Reddit. So mm-hmm. again, you don't have to do any of this, but it's, it's there it's, for those who want it. And that's why right. I think it's additive. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're in the any trust chain kind of example. You need to trust one of n. You're still there's still some degree of trust, but I guess there is more guarantees of kind of more credible neutrality. I don't know if that's the right term that invites other people to then use the points as the currency as the standard. 
knowing that Arbitrum doesn't have, oh, sorry, knowing that Reddit doesn't have full discretion of just, you know, like deleting the entering the database, if they will. Yeah. And by the way, the thing that you're trusting these players to do, it's not even like a target approach. It's literally to provide like the, the data of the, of the blockchain. Now, of mm-hmm. course, you know, if, so if every single one of, you know, Google, uh, right. Reddit, Offchain Labs, Consensus, FTX, Lido, QuickNote uh, got together and said, you know, we're going <clears> to, <throat> you know, censor this user. So yeah, you're a thousand percent right. There is that mm-hmm. one degree of trust, but um, you know, it's it's for most users that is uh, that, and that is the trade-off that the antitrust makes, and it makes that to get you know even mm-hmm. lower cost. Mm-hmm. For most users, that's uh, a good trade-off, and I, and I would argue mm-hmm. that it's um, a lower trust requirement than or, or harder to um, have a problem with in this model than it is in many alternative layer ones, and, and therefore, I think um, you know it's a nice, it's a sweet space. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a roll-up, so there is that degree of trust, absolutely, mm-hmm. but um, it does occupy a really um, interesting point in the, in the design space where you can have low fees and that um, you know pretty pretty um, low trust required environment mm-hmm. right before we round up um, I want to ask you guys a question which has been more in the limelight as of recently which is this idea of centralization and um, you know if all sort of validators are in a particular geography you know is the chain at risk of being halted by a state agent um, I'm curious to get your general thoughts on on this increasing concern. Is it being overblown? How real it is? Are there things that you're doing from a development standpoint to mitigate this? Um, um, so yeah, open ended question. Feel free to comment. You may not be able to comment on this, but just kind of curious on what your you know both of your takes are on, on this particular topic. I can comment on some of the facts that are happening on mm-hmm. on L1 currently with censorship. So. Yeah. Um, you know, it's no secret that today a lot of uh, a lot of transactions are going through uh, what are known as uh, you know uh, block relays. So operated mm-hmm. by entities, centralized entities such as flashbots. And the reason people do this is because they you know they want to be able to reap the benefits of sending transactions on Ethereum. They want to be able to do arbitrage. They want to do things like this, and these are possible through these relays that um, you know prevent you from being front run and help you package transactions into bundles and things like that. So. Um, you know, the, the most popular relay from Flashbots is censoring uh, currently Ethereum transactions. Um, and I believe around uh, almost 51% or more of Ethereum blocks on mainnet today are compliant with OFAC regulations because a lot of them are being produced by these Flashbots relays. Um, you know, is that is that really as alarming as it seems? Well, even, you know, if, if, even if only 1% of validators on Ethereum um, are, are not censoring, um, your transaction still has a 95% chance of being included within one hour. So it doesn't mean that these transactions will never make it on chain. They will still make it on chain. Um, and it will just take a little bit longer than normal, right? Can we do something about this? Because to be frank, it is a big problem. And I think the only way to do this is to really hard technology that will, that will, that will prevent this from happening in the first place. And there are things being worked on today on L1 that will prevent these, these things. One of them are what are called uh, transaction inclusion proofs. So, as a, as a validator on Ethereum, you can request this relay to give you proof that it will include a transaction. And if it doesn't, then you can you you will not use it. And basically they will lose, you know, they will lose you as a validator. So there are marketplace solutions. There are technology solutions that can be done to reduce this. And they're b- being very heavily developed. Um, you know, it's going slower than expected because, you know, Ethereum proof of stake just happened. And this new model just, just basically went live uh, less than a month ago. But it's definitely, you know, at the forefront of all, all the developers' minds. Um, everyone wants to fix this problem, and there are solutions moving forward. Um, and the way to solve it is really through technology. 
basically making it so that no matter what, like they won't be able to censor it. Um, and that's just the reality of things because the base layer needs to be as censorship resistant as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, as of course, that's what, that's what L2s and rollups rely on. So yeah, we are working on that and it is, it is a problem, but it doesn't mean that it, that Ethereum is, you know, it doesn't mean that these transactions are censored forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, Ethereum obviously is a decentralized network and the nature of being a decentralized network is you have a, a different, you know, a decentralized makeup of nodes and uh, with that decentralized um, you know, jurisdictions and regulations. And um, yeah, so I, I think um, having, you know, a, a many different different uh, representations there is, is actually strong for Ethereum and building a strong decentralized network um, obviously is one of Ethereum's core values. And, mm-hmm. you know, one, one of the reasons why we at, at Arbitrum choose to build on top of Ethereum is because we believe that the security and the decentralization of Ethereum are really um, much, much stronger than everyone else. And that's on, on the base layer of Ethereum, right? Of course, there are operators at different levels. And, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, these operators, are, of course, individuals or entities, you know, um, they make different decisions. But Ethereum is certainly, um, in, term, in the smart contract space, you know, I think the gold standard for security and decentralization, but that doesn't mean that it can't be more decentralized over time, of course. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, gents. Uh, we can keep going on for hours. I, I, I know you guys have a lot to work on, so I don't want to take more of your time. Uh, I guess any parting thoughts uh, for listeners out there, uh, you know, particularly towards the end of where they can learn more about what you guys are doing, your roadmap, how they could get involved. But uh, before we get there, just any kind of parting thoughts or things you'd like to talk about before we wrap it up? Yeah, I'll just uh, you know say I'm super excited about the Prismatic Labs uh, acquisition and working together with Raul, Preston, and the entire team, I think uh, this is going to be extremely uh, synergistic and beneficial to us and to the community. And you'll start to see, you know, uh, start to see that over time where we have just more minds working together towards these same problems and building really great solutions, but at the same time committed to developing PRISM as a completely uh, neutral and open source project. So I think we'll have, and and a well-funded project. So we'll have the best of both worlds uh, here, absolutely. And, um, yeah, if anyone, if this sounds interesting to anyone and, you know, please feel free to get in touch, uh, or you're growing, uh, our team, our joint team. So we're growing, you know, mm-hmm. we have room for more people building prism, have more people building Arbitrum and more people, uh, you know, um, working on these really hard problems. So please, uh, find, find us if that's, if that's interesting. Yeah. There, there's just so much, there's just so much to be said for, uh, bringing teams that you know have have experience in the community to work under the same roof, and I think you know we're also very excited to be part of uh, part of Offchain Labs. I think you know even even the first week we're already starting to work on some of the some of the really cool things coming up, coming to Arbitrum, and can't wait to see can't wait for the community to see uh, what's next. Uh, it's 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 really fantastic. Um, there's so much in the works uh, for Ethereum, and it, mm-hmm. it is really the place to be. Um, you know for applications. Um, so much innovation, so many, so many great, uh, great teams uh, building on it, thinking about the hard problems and coming up with solutions. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, this bear market is a time to build and, and it's uh, to us, it's, it's really a pleasure to be part of this. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, you know, extremely, extremely bullish uh, for the future of optimistic rollups and for the future of just really scaling, you know, technologies that scale Ethereum. Absolutely. I think the, a lot of these developments go unnoticed during bear markets. And uh, I've always found the bear markets are the best time to build core infra that uh, we didn't really have the time to pay much attention to in raging bull markets. So, uh, gents, thank you for coming on. I think you're doing incredible work to scale Ethereum, or if it's not Ethereum, whatever 
the next solution is over the next five, 10 years, I think a lot will change, but uh, it's uh, great to see both of you guys and your teams really be at it um, during crazy uh, market volatility and cycles over the years. And so uh, really excited uh, to see what comes next uh, in this combined chapter. Uh, thanks for coming on and looking forward uh, to maybe continuing this conversation uh, further down the road, uh, but wishing you the best of luck and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff.